Hello there, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am your host Cici Wang, and you're listening to my interview podcast, where I chat with people from all walks of life to hear their stories and to share insights we can all learn from. A snarky wizard, brooms, and magical messes. My guest today is the beloved children's fantasy author and illustrator Lee Edward Foddy from Vancouver, British Columbia. Lee has written ten fantasy novels for children. His latest being Spellsweeper, an exciting story for any reader who loves Harry Potter. Most people think broom plus magic equals flying, right? Wrong. Take it from me, Kara Moon, someone who's failing wizard school. Even when it comes to magic, brooms are for one thing and one thing only: sweeping. So yes, wizard school has star students, magical creatures, and all sorts of potions. But the story of my life—it's called Spellsweeper. Go ahead, read it, but remember, there are no flying brooms. You've been warned, okay, people? The main character in Spellsweeper is Kara Moon, an ambitious human girl studying at the prestigious Dragonstone Academy for Wizards. But instead of learning to cast spells, she's put on the fast track to become a mop, aka a wizard janitor forced to clean up other students' magical mess. We'll get into that a little later. I'm very happy to have Lee with me here today to tell us more about his creative process, how he became a children's fantasy author, and how we can all benefit from a little more imagination in our lives. Welcome, Lee. Thanks for having me. So congratulations on your new book, Spellsweeper. I believe it's your proudest book yet. How did it come about? Oh, thank you. I I think it is the book I'm the most proud of, and I think that is because I wrote it fairly quickly, and I think it's because I achieved something with it. I guess I achieved what I wanted to achieve with it, if that makes sense. And it came about fairly quickly in one sense. I knew I wanted to write. A book about magical brooms. I tend to wander through the world, kind of collecting different ideas or different inspirations. And I, I know when I was traveling a lot, especially before the pandemic, I kept noticing brooms everywhere, which is an odd thing to notice. It's such a pedestrian object, right? But I'd be wandering down like a street in Hanoi. And I'd see this lonely broom sitting on the street corner, and I would stop and take a photo and kind of wonder about it, and my wife would say, "Why are you? What's going on? Why are you stopped here taking a picture of a broom of all things?" And I said, "I don't know," but that's how I've trained myself as a creative person: is to not always question what inspires me, but just to pay attention and to record it, to take note of it. So I kept taking broom pictures. And so I knew like, I'm going to write a book about brooms. I just don't know what it is yet. And I kept kind of pondering ideas such as, oh, what if this broom has been placed there by some magical person, a wizard or someone waiting for someone to grab it and then they can whisk off and they will, you know, they'll go to wizard school or something. But, you know, that's a pretty common idea, flying on brooms and things like that. And I kept, you know, there's lots of famous children's books. Obviously, there's Harry Potter, but I was thinking of The Little Broomstick by Mary Stewart, which is a classic 
children's book, and that's exactly what happens there. A girl finds a broom and it whisks her off to wizard school. So I kept thinking I need to do something different, and I finally just thought, what if magical brooms are for sweeping? What if they're for exactly <laughs> the same thing we do in real life, but they're just for sweeping magical messes? And as soon as I had that idea, it started to take shape, and it, it, it snowballed very quickly. Wow, that's very uh, unexpected, I guess, you know, just to actually put the broom to use for sweeping. So that's where you got the idea from. But I do notice some parallels between uh, Spell Sweeper and Harry Potter. Yeah, I think it's really hard. You know, part of me was like, am I really going to write a book about wizard school? I mean, that's a crazy proposition in a way, because Harry Potter is not just famous, it's like the book, right? It's the franchise. And it wasn't like I wanted to take that on. It wasn't like I wanted to compete with that or, or anything of that nature. But I have been writing a long time and I'm of a certain age. So I grew up long before Harry Potter and I'm aware of lots of fantasy books that existed before Harry Potter. I realized there's a DNA to Harry Potter that a lot of younger or kind of current readers might not recognize. So I do have to say I'm a little bit amused sometimes when I, you know, I read some reviews by readers and they criticize me for certain things about Harry Potter. Like, you know, their assumption is, oh, I stole this idea, this concept, for example, of the chosen one from Harry Potter. <laughs> and, you know, that is a very common fantasy trope that goes far beyond uh, Harry Potter, mm. far beyond even the fantasy genre. I mean, it's things we find in Star Wars. It's things we find in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's it's a trope that exists on a much deeper level in, in storytelling. So I guess I just decided that I wouldn't, I, when I was writing it, I wouldn't try to worry too much about that, knowing that it would come. However, I do want to say at the same time, I'm a creative writing teacher. I work with tons of children and I work with a lot of kids who come from different backgrounds, especially Asia. And one of the things I noticed over the years is that they love Harry Potter, mm. but they don't see themselves in Harry Potter. And I felt like there was this kind of undercurrent of desire to go to magic school. <laughs> and they wanted to be more of a player in that world, if that makes sense. So I, I, that was just something that was playing in my mind as well for this book. And that is why the chosen one, in this book is Harley Wu. She is not, um, she is the exact opposite, you know, kind of visually anyway, physically from, from Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also a lot of other um, Asian characters in your book that I noticed, which is so different from most of the fantasy books you read about these days. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> well, I do think that, I do think that's changing because we have so many fantastic diverse voices coming up in children's lit or that have been around and are now writing fantasy books that are based on, you know, Asian uh, mythology. So I'm really pleased with that. Like, mm -hmm. and, and because once again, um, I should say my own son is, is Asian and my, so many of my students are Asian. So I'm really looking for those stories for, for all of them as well. So I think that is, is really starting to change. And I'm so happy about that. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit more about uh, the main character, Kara Moon. Yeah, I think she also came from a place of, you know, came from my teaching experience because I've worked with so many kids over the years. And I feel like Kara Moon, the main character in this book, I feel like I've met her. I feel like I've taught her. She is a character who 
wants to be something really special. She wants to be the chosen one, but she's not. And I really love the idea of someone who is not the chosen one of a story, but wishes they were and is kind of off to the side. Mm -hmm. And I feel I see this kind of yearning in so many of my students these days, especially with social media and, you know, Instagram and that sort of thing. There's this desire, like, I can't tell you the number of times kids have told me, I want to be famous. When I grew up, that's my goal. I want to be famous. And I always think, well, that's not really a career or, you know, it's, it, but that's an ask, that's a genuine aspiration that they are feeling. And so I wanted to kind of capture that yearning with this character. And, but I also wanted to put her on a trajectory where she came to a place where she started realizing that she can feel significant and important in her own life. It doesn't need to be recognized by others. And I really am fascinated by that subject. And that's why I made her the way she is. Now, her snarkiness or her kind of brazenness, if you will, that came from, you know, that voice came from many of my students I've taught over the years. I've met kids like that. And I always kind of, I love those kinds of kids. And I felt like once that voice kind of solidified in my, in my head, it was really hard to get rid of. Like Kara speaks to me still sometimes, mm. like I can still hear her response <laughs> to certain things. And yeah. she's not, she's not always right. Like that's the other thing. Like she says things like a kid says, or even an adult for that matter, she will have a response that's actually not entirely logical or do you know what I mean? Like she'll say something. It's like, but that's how people talk, Right. Like she's more looking for a quick laugh or a quick reaction sometimes, right? She's looking to stir the pot. She's not necessarily looking to be accurate. Yeah, but she's certainly a very likable character. <laughs> well, I hope so. I mean, I think what makes her likable is her, what's going on underneath. But I think on the surface, you know, she has this kind of brashness that may, you know, it does certainly kind of push away other characters in the context of the story, at least at first. Yeah. So how did you come up with this idea that um, for Kara Moon, instead of uh, learning spells and all those wizardry stuff, you know, in wizard school, that she's forced to become this janitor? Yeah, I, I really feel like once I had that question, that foundational question, what if brooms in the magical world are for sweeping? And then I had this other idea, like a character wanting to be famous and then I always feel like it's the job of an author to cause problems for fictional people. It seemed like a pretty good match. I'm going to make her do exactly what she doesn't want to do and make her at the bottom of the school pecking order. And even though this is a fantasy book, I feel like it's very much a realistic book in how kids feel how the school system is and how, mm -hmm. you know, how many times have I heard a student complain about so-and-so the queen of the school or the king of the school and, and even if that's not accurate, you know, th they have that perception of that person. So, yeah, once again, I really wanted to explore that. So I love the idea of pairing Kara, putting her with this, this program in school, this, <laughs> this lowest program and her self-worth plummeting and her wanting to have something else. And then having this chosen one character, Harley Wu, who she's very, like, she's extremely jealous of Harley Wu even though she doesn't know a thing about her. Like, truly, she doesn't, you know, it's just how she feels. And I really love the idea of exploring that. Mm -hmm. And then they go on this huge adventure. 
Yeah, because of course, then you have to plug them together, right? <laughs> and they learn about each other. And it's a way of Kara being confronted with a certain reality, not only about Harley, but about herself, right? Like, what is the truth of my role in this world? And when I say this world, I mean the magical world that she exists in. But I guess, you know, allegorically, it would that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. What is my role in this world, right? Mm-hmm. And does that matter if it is celebrated or recognized or, you know, what is the purpose of my role in this world? Mm-hmm. I guess I can't ask you about whether she uh, ultimately did become a true wizard by the end of the book, but um, what do you hope our readers will take away from it? Well, I think that's such an interesting question that you just asked, because I think part of the ongoing dialogue between Kara and herself and other characters is, yeah, what is a true wizard? And I think that's what metaphorically I'm trying to say as well is like, what is the measure of a person? Mm. Like, you know, for her, it's like, what is the measure of me magically? But I would say to, you know, I would say to my students, well, what is the measure of yourself? And who gives you that measure? Do you give yourself that measure? Or does society give you that measure? How much power do you give to the society? How do we fundamentally live with ourselves, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, right? So um, I guess, you know, you ask that question, uh, does she ever become a true wizard? And I actually would say, well, the true question is, what is a true wizard? Mm. I would answer your question with a question. And that's, and, that, and, that's, and that's what Kara has to ponder in this book. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, I definitely will try to get my hand on the actual book and see what the end is. <laughs> yes, because you've only read an excerpt, yes. so I've, I've set mm-hmm. it up for you. But Yeah, you've, you've got been... me hooked. <laughs> All right. Um, how does Spellsweeper compare to your other fantasy books, uh, like the Zoom series and uh, Kendra Candlestar series? Yeah, I feel like the Kendra Candlestar series I wrote in a very classical voice, a very kind of traditional storytelling voice. And Zune was a little bit of the same. So third person, you know, very um, uh, conventional sort of storytelling. And Spellsweeper represented a really big departure for me because it was the first time I've written something that's been published that is first person present tense. Mm-hmm. So I, I do a lot of extra writing, of course, because that's what writers do. Not everything I write is intended to be published. I do a lot of writing for my students as part of our programs. And I love writing in first person, present tense for other things I do. But then I finally thought, I'm going to actually try and sit down and do it in terms of a book that I'm actually pitching. And and so that was a huge shift for me. And I actually really loved it. It was, it was, it was so much fun. Mm-hmm, I see. So the Zoom series and Kendra Candlestar, can you just give um, our listeners a sense of what they're about? Yeah, Kendra Candlestar is a five book series that I wrote about a kind of, I guess you would say it's a very kind of traditional fantasy story, uh, you know, where she is the chosen one, Kendra is, and she gets um, sucked away in this quest and it, it impacts the greater society in which she lives. So she's basically an elf-like creature who is chosen to, um, in the first book, go off and find this mysterious box of whispers, which contains all the secrets of her people. And she ends up finding out that it also contains her secret, a secret that's very important to her, very precious. And through that process, 
unlocks a greater adventure that happens in the rest of the series. And of course, uh, she's going to explore the truth of herself in her society. Zune is meant to be, um, I guess what I was trying to do with Zune is a little bit of a roller coaster ride, like an amusement park ride, like something that was really fun and adventurous. And she, uh, sorry, um, the main character in that book, I usually write main characters who are female, but in Zune, I actually tried to do a main character who's a boy, and that's Ozzy Sparks, who finds a secret door in his apartment building basement and goes to this place called Zune, which is a magical hub where a thousand doors lead to a thousand different worlds. So wow. it was kind of like a gateway place, right? And so I really had fun. I'm also really fascinated with doors. I was talking about how I was fascinated with brooms. So I have this kind of collection of doors that I've, of door photos that I've taken over the years throughout my travels. And that was a big inspiration for that book. Okay. All your children's fantasy novels are set in a different world. How do you approach world building in your novels? Carefully is the short answer. I mean, I would say Spellsweeper is firmly planted in this world, though it has that kind of hidden world in it, right? So there is still a lot of world building in it. And I take world building very seriously. And like, I never start a book by sitting down at my computer and, and typing. All of my books start in a brainstorming journal. And they usually start with questions. They usually start with sketches and doodles. I'm a very visual person. And, you know, Zune was probably the most ambitious world building project I'd ever undertaken because it wasn't just one world I was building. It was several. Mm-hmm. So I actually had this idea for that book in terms of the setting and I had the idea for characters, but I had no idea about plot. So I just built the world first for several months, imagining all the different, like the main world Zune and then all the sub worlds. And I just built them, built them, built them so that when it came time to figure out a plot, I could run around in within that environment and not have to make it up as I went along, if that makes sense. So that's a very common kind of strategy for me is to start with world, like start with world building, build the world and let the plot start to come afterwards. So, and I build my worlds. Well, sometimes I actually literally build stuff as part of my world. building. Oh. Like I, yeah. Like I build a lot of props and I build dragon eggs. I build brooms. I build magic potion kits. You know, I build, it's, it's a, big part of how I keep myself creative and keep myself going throughout the writing process, which, you know, I find, I love working with words, but my brain gets tired. I find it can be tedious. So sometimes I just need to sit down and build a dragon egg, (laughs) but it's, you know, so for me, world building is sometimes quite literal. Yeah. And you said you draw a lot of inspiration from traveling. Yeah. And I, once again, like I just really pay attention when I travel. I mean, I'm a terrible person to go on vacation with because I always take my notebook and I've got my camera and I'm writing blog posts and I'm journaling and and organizing my photos. And even when I think I'm not going to be inspired, I'm going to be inspired. Like it's Mm -hmm. just inevitable. So I think there was a time where when I was younger and I would try to turn that off and try to ignore that. But the truth of the matter is now I know that's not, I'm just going to let the inspiration flow. I'm not turning off that switch. So I'm going to, I'm going to let it flow. So there's a famous, um, I don't know, can I say famous? It's a famous scene in Spellsweeper. Um, This moment where they, the crew, Kara and her Spellsweeping crew go to clean up this magical mess. And it takes place at a 
train wreck site near where I live. I live in Vancouver, so it's it's, uh, it's up in the mountains near Whistler, BC. And it actually exists. That place actually exists. Oh. And I went there on vacation to Whistler one a couple few years ago when Spell Sweeper is just beginning to dance in my mind. And I went to visit this weird train wreck site in the middle of the forest. This train wreck happened and they just pulled the carriages into the woods and left them there. They've been sitting there for 60 years. And as soon as I went there, I'm like, "Uh oh, this is really something unusual and different. Thank God I brought my camera and my notebook because I need to do something with this location. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, I put it into Swell Sweeper. But the second I saw that, I knew I'm doing something with this. Mm-hmm. So like everything uh, you see everywhere you go, you're constantly thinking about how uh, the things that you see, the things that you touch can work into your future books. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm just I'm making sure I'm on, if that makes yeah. sense. Like I might walk down the street and nothing catches my attention. But if it does catch my attention, I don't, how do I put this? I don't just go, eh, and then keep moving. I Mm. go, wait a minute. Why do I find that interesting? Okay, it doesn't matter. It just matters that I find it interesting. Pay attention. If I have my notebook with me and I have my camera, I'll record it. If I don't, for whatever reason, then, you know, the old mental camera picture. And then I, as soon as I get the opportunity, I make some notes and write it down. And I feel like as a person who teaches creative writing that school really partitions us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, we go to school and I see this in my students. They go, well, now I'm in math. Now I am in this. Now I'm doing this. Now I'm coming to a creative writing class. And what I'm constantly trying to convince them is that all things are connected and that they should not partition everything and that they too should pay attention. And I wish... I paid more attention to that when I was their age, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's a learning process. And I understand, you know, sometimes for a student, they're just trying to get through the week. So they're not kind of making those other connections, but I just know that that's kind of been a big lesson for me as I've matured as a writer and as a creative person that I really need to pay attention. And if something grabs me, do not ignore it. So do you have to tell your mind to turn off sometimes just to purely relax? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, so it's really hard for me to do that. Mm. Um, I find even watching TV or movies, for example, or listening to music can trigger me in terms of inspiring me. Mm-hmm. I find watching sports really turns my brain off. <laughs> it does not inspire me at all. So I watch sports like that is one of the best things for turning my brain off. I see. Like I can't read. I can't read for to turn my brain off. Reading just gets me yep. going. Yep. yep. And I love reading and I read a lot, but I, I read with a pen in my hand because I know I'm going to see a passage that someone's written or they're going to use a word in a way that I've never, you know, I've never considered using that word or that phrase in that way before. So I make little notes. And so I love to read, but it's not its not a passive activity for me. It's very much an active activity for me. Mm-hmm. So what does your book of ideas actually look like? Do you have categories where you can just go there when you want to, let's say, post something for a specific purpose? Well, we're on audio, but I'm just going to yeah. show you uh, my one yeah. of my brainstorming books. And it's just a simple dollar store book. Mm-hmm. I've I've. I have students sometimes who give me these really fancy, expensive notebooks. 
which I'm really grateful for. But I'm so careful to not like if I get a really fancy book, I'm sometimes like, oh, should I write in this yep. book? Like it's it's you know. So I prefer the dollar store book because I I I'm constantly looking for avenues to increase my my creativity and my brainstorming and to not hold it back so for example I only work in pen when I'm in a brainstorming book even though I'm a highly visual person I do a lot of sketches of characters but I don't work in pencil because whenever I work in pencil it tells my brain that I am illustrating and I am an illustrator I have worked as an illustrator but that's not what I'm doing when I'm brainstorming. I just want to keep moving forward. I want to keep writing down ideas. I don't want to erase ideas. And whenever I go to a school and I get kids to brainstorm, if they use pencils, I see them falling into the same trap that I can fall into. So they start erasing and trying to draw a character better, or they will erase an idea that they've written down. And that's exactly what I don't want them to do. And that's exactly what I don't want to do. I want to write down all of the ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I'm looking, I'm sitting there looking at a student in a school, for example, and I say, come up with a name for a character. And they will ponder their page with their pencil in hand. And I can see them thinking, then they'll write down one idea and then they go, I've got it. And I'm saying, you had way more ideas than that. I could see it in your eyes, but you already turned off, like your inner critic already said, not that idea, not that idea, this is the one. So what I'm trying to do for myself and what I'm trying to do for them is go put down all those ideas and generate lists, generate multiple options. So my brainstorming journal is a disaster. It is so messy, but that's okay. I want it to be in a way. Um, the only organization that I truly have is that I have a catch-all journal for ideas that don't have a home yet. Mm-hmm. Soon as a soon as I know this, as soon as I have an idea that I know is going to turn into a project, or I hope will turn into a project, it gets its own book. Oh, I see. And that's my pretty much my only organization. Um, other than that, things happen quite randomly in that not randomly, but they're not in any kind of structure or order. I try to sometimes, but and things end up going all over the place. Mm. So and and I just try to embrace that chaos and I used to feel kind of embarrassed by my messiness but now I just try to embrace it and let those ideas gush out and then it's really fun for me to flip through those journals or when I'm feeling oh I'm stuck I'll just flip back through those journals and I'm finding ideas that I didn't even remember writing down mm -hmm. and that's what I try to communicate to everyone too is like it's almost like finding hidden treasure. It's almost like you get to steal a really good idea, except you're not stealing it because you wrote it down. Yeah, yeah. Um, you talked earlier that you also illustrate, and I've checked out some of your illustrations, and they're absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, very detailed and um, very imaginative. So are you as much of an artist, illustrator, um, as a writer? I think I'm a writer. I think one of the things that has evolved in my career is it was always a struggle in my life. Like, do I want to be an artist? Do I want to be a writer? And I think what I've come to is that I'm a storyteller. I'm a creative person. I don't need to necessarily put everything into silos, but if I had to define it, I would say I'm a writer who draws mm. and I illustrated the Kendra Kennel star series. I really had a very specific vision for that series that I wanted to achieve in terms of the story and in terms of the artwork. 
but it was a lot of work. And I think what I came to after that series is, you know what? I don't actually need to illustrate my work. I don't need, if someone else wants to do that, or someone else can do the cover, they can do it better than me probably, or in a different way, and that's okay. But I need to draw in order to build up my story. I just, it's, it's really hard for me to write without drawing a little character sketch or a doodle or making a map. Those are all activities that I need to nurture and I need to keep doing them, but they don't necessarily need to be for publication. Mm-hmm. But you have worked with um, other children's authors um, to help them illustrate their books. You are at a professional level with your illustrations. Yes, I, I have. Uh, I, I am and I have been and I have illustrated books for other authors. I don't do it so much anymore because I think I am concentrating more on my own work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just, once again, I think that's just an evolution of my career and where I've gotten to. And I, you know, it's not that I wouldn't, you know, never say never, maybe I'll find a project that I really want to do. And I want to illustrate it for someone else. Maybe I'll do that again for myself. But in the last few years, I feel like that's where I've been at. Mm-hmm. Uh, just out of curiosity, did you uh, take lessons in illustration? Uh, or did you teach yourself? Yeah, I, you know, going back to when I was a younger person, I, you know, and I said, oh, it was always my, the tension in my life. Do I want to be an artist? Do I want to be a writer? And I kept chasing my own tail, but I originally went to art school. Oh, so I, see. I studied uh, fine arts for two years. Then I ended up getting my degree in English literature. So, I mean, this <laughs> is like, it kept, you know, I kept going, what am I? What am I? And I think, I think that happens a lot when we're in our lives in general, but when we're younger People always want to know what we are. Yeah. This goes back to our conversation about spell sweeper. Like, what are you? Yeah. What kind of wizard are you? Who are you? We get asked that question. And I see that in my kids, you know, they get bombarded with those questions. And so we become automatically attuned to coming up with those labels for ourselves. And those labels can be helpful or those definitions rather can be helpful because then we can just tell someone, right? But the deeper soul feeding question is what are you to yourself? Right. And you need to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I did go to art school in terms of the illustration. Uh, I didn't take an illustration program. So I suppose in that kind of vein of a bit self-taught, but I did go to art school. Mm-hmm. I want to get to know a bit more about you and maybe your childhood. Like how did it, how did you end up becoming an author? Was it, um, was it always in your DNA? Did you know from a very young age that you were this creative, this imaginative, that you want to do something with words and storytelling? How did it evolve to this point? So my story is that I grew up in a very small town in rural Canada. I grew up on a farm. Um, my grandparents were immigrants to Canada and came from a very humble background. So I came from a very kind of... Um, hardworking, menial labor sort of family. And I'm the oldest boy in my family. And it was my dad's vision that I would take over the family farm. And I think that quickly became apparent that that would not be possible because I'm not that person. And my mom said that I was the type of kid who was telling stories with pictures the moment I could pick up a crayon. And I definitely wrote a lot of books as a kid I still have some of them and they're all handmade and you know various levels of terribleness that was very much um, how I was wired so you talk about the DNA but it was a really 
it was not a good fit for my environment. Like growing up in a small town in Canada, the things that are valued were, you know, working hard, playing hockey, fishing, hunting, like those things aren't what I'm wired for. But I'm really fortunate because one of the foundational experiences in my life, actually, I'm just, this connects to Spell Sweeper too, actually. <laughs> I just realized when you asked about some of the ideas. So when I was in grade three, I was pulled out of my classroom and made to sit in the hallway in a desk by myself. And I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. What did I do? And I was given this piece of paper with circles written all over it or uh, all over it. And they said, draw pictures. And so I did, but I, I did something peculiar. Like I connected one, I made one drawing out of all the circles or I connected this. I did something that caught someone's attention. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing I was put into some interviews and I had to go through these tests and in my imagination, I was hooked up to electrodes, but that didn't happen. But I was eventually put into a kind of pilot program at the, and the, like basically, essentially, it was a gifted learning program. But back in those days, they called it a, they called it something else. And that program kind of saved me. I think that was a place where I had those parts of me nurtured, mm -hmm. the because they weren't nurtured necessarily by my community. And it's not that my parents were against my creativity; they just didn't understand it, and it didn't wasn't something they were familiar with. I think it did scare them a little bit because I didn't, I don't think they realized that you could have a career in that sort of thing. And, but I had this program, I had the same teacher in elementary school for three years and I was in the same classroom for three years. So it was a very foundational experience where I was kind of separated from rest of the school and there was very few kids in this program. So we kind of had to band together. My teacher's name is Miss... Uh, I, I say is because I still know her, but her name is Mrs. Clough. And we were always called Clough's Kids. What are Clough Kids doing? Like they get to do all this <laughs> stuff and they're creative. But I was great because I had my I had my tribe, so to speak, right? Like I found my people, I found my place, and I had my mentor. And you know, I think in Spell Sweeper, Kara gets there's a scene where Kara gets pulled out and she gets interviewed. Uh this is when she there's a scene where she has this flashback moment and she's talking about the time when she got pulled out of regular school and put into this situation where she got interviewed. And that is very much came from that experience in my own life. Wow. So when did you realize you wanted to become a children's fantasy author? I think I realized it really young and I think I was quite passionate about it. I was quite serious about it. I have a sister who is 12 years younger than me. So she came along when I was 12, 11 or 12. And it kind of gave me an excuse to keep writing kids books. Like when I was, when I was a teenager, I, you know, it's not cool to be writing kids stories, but I kind of had this built in excuse to be a kid. Cause I had to entertain this little sister of mine who was constantly in my care. And so I loved it. And I think there came a time in my life where I went to university and I studied English literature and I kind of thought, oh, I need to be a literary writer. I need to do X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. Then I need to get a job. Then I need to, you know, I think I actually took myself off my own passionate path and it took me a while to climb back and just kind of admit, you know what? I really want to write kids books. Just admit it. Just do it. Mm. And I was probably in about my mid twenties when I finally took a deep breath, looked myself in the mirror and said, just go for it. Just do it. I see. 
Did you hold more regular jobs before that point? Yeah, I was a graphic designer, so I guess I was still pretty creative.、Mm-hmm. I was a graphic designer and copywriter, so writing, I was writing and making stuff. So it was fairly creative, but I was doing that、um, on the corporate level. So it wasn't, it wasn't feeding my heart. It wasn't feeding my soul. I would come home and start writing, but I still, for the longest time, I wasn't really quite admitting that's what I was doing. So, like I said, I remember very clearly there was a moment and said, "I just want to go for this." So I kind of gave myself a three-year, maybe it was shorter, but I gave myself kind of deadline. But it was good. I was like, "Don't rush it. Just give yourself two or three years or whatever it had been at that point." Write something, you know, do the pictures for it because I wanted to illustrate that project, and just seriously do this and finish it. And so I did do that, and that ended up being Karanda's Crown, which was my very first published children's book. Which it's probably out of print now、uh, because that was so long ago. But that's that's how I finally achieved it is just by being really serious and really honest with myself. Was it hard to get your first book published? You know, I fumble over this question because I think that goes to a confidence level. Like it is really hard to get published. But then, as soon as I got published, I was thinking, "Oh, I got published. Anyone must be able to do it, <laughs> right?" So I think that's just a little bit of a self worth issue.、Um, I ended up getting published by going to I think it was Book Expo.、Uh, they have a big conference in the states, and I actually went there with my manuscript in hand and kind of walked around and met publishers and was trying to learn about the industry. This is pre. It wasn't pre internet, but it was pre what it's before what the internet is now, right? Like it was pretty rudimentary, so it wasn't like you had access to the same resources that anyone has resource、uh, access to now. So that's actually how I met、uh, my first publisher and ended up getting published. How do you know if a manuscript is good enough to get published? I'm not sure. I do. Well, I'm very fortunate now. I have an agent, so you know I tend to run things by her. She's very good.、Mm-hmm. And she's not only someone who just represents me and represents my work, but she evaluates my work.、Mm-hmm. So I know there's been a case、uh, recently last year. Where I'm developing. I'm currently developing a couple of projects, and I put them. You know, they're not done, but I put them before her, and I said, "I want you to know if they're saleable. Like, are these like? I guess to your point, like, are these good enough to be published? But the question I would ask her, because that's her job, is like, can you sell these?、Mm. Because that's a different question too, right? Like, I'm sure there are books out there that are absolutely amazing that just didn't sell to a publisher, and so it's a really interesting question. Like, what makes art, right? And what are we trying to do? Whenever someone comes to me and says, "I want to write," I always say, "Okay, what's your goal? Like, what do you want? Like, do you want to?" Become famous? Do you want to sell your manuscripts, and and are you just writing because you have to, because you love it? There are different things, right? And I think if you're not clear about what you're trying to do, you might set your off yourself up for some frustration. And I always just say, just be really honest with yourself, because I'm not here to criticize your goals. Like if you want to be rich and famous, just admit it to yourself and go for it. That means you want to sell your manuscript. That means you want a big. You know, you in all likelihood that probably means you want a big、uh, New York publisher, for example, right? Whereas if your goal is like, actually, you know what? I just really want to write a really good story, and if it gets out there, that's great. If it finds a home, that's great. Then that's good because it helps you 
know what your goals is because then what your goals are. So maybe then it's okay if a smaller press takes your book, or maybe you want to go down the indie publishing route. Like there's, I just think it's good to know what you want, right. And what you want to do. But I mean, I find it really, I have so many friends in this industry and I have so many friends who are been super successful, but for example, they'll have written a book that is really close to their heart that they absolutely love and their agents can't sell it for whatever reason. It doesn't get any bites. And so I've had a few friends do this who, who say, you know what, for this particular title, I'm just going to self-publish it. I want it out there. I want it out there in the world. So, you know, it's such an interesting time that in the industry that we're in. And it's such an interesting question. Like, how do you know when something's good enough? And who de- once again, we I feel like we're on a theme here. Like, who determines that? Is it is it sale numbers? Is it is it like is it the editor at a certain house? Is it readership? I don't know. Is it the number of reviews on Amazon or Goodreads? I don't know. But I do think the question's important, and I think it's one we have to ponder. Mm-hmm. But for you, um, like personally, you write because I guess you feel very strongly about an idea. Yeah, I think I write because I have to. Who? I mean, who am I kidding? I write because stories come up in my mind. I'm an immersive kid. Or sorry, I'm not a kid. Uh, I was an immersive kid. I was like a very, you know, I was a gifted learning kid. I still have that. That's still me. Uh, I'm a big kid. And those stories are rolling around in my mind and they need to come out. And I need to get them down. Mm. And there's lots of things I write that don't get published. There's lots of things I'm writing that I'm not sure I will publish for a variety of reasons. Some because I might not want to share them and some because I'm not sure they would be, you know, easy to sell. But anyway, I have to write. I see. And you also coach other children to tap into their creativity and to get their work published as well in your creative workshops, right? Yeah, I have this really good, I mean, I'm an introvert. So the idea of getting published was really appealing to me at first because I thought, being a writer is great. No one knows who you are and you don't have to do anything. And then I got published and all of a sudden it's like, oh no, you have to go do school visits and you have to make appearances and go to bookstores. And I was like, whoa, that wasn't part of the deal. But then I went to a school and I realized I really loved it. And I loved working with kids. And maybe this goes back to me having a younger sister and, and having that experience. And then um, I met a, a person named June Park who approached me he sent my he sent me like this email that I opened and didn't ignore and said, hey, I want to start, you know, I want to start a creative writing program for kids. Uh, he said, I'm from Korea and I've immigrated to Canada and I have two daughters and I want to start a program for them and a program specifically for first generation and second generation kids who are like immigrant kids. Can you, would you be interested in helping me do this? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Like, I that sounds kind of fun. And so June and I started that program and we're still doing it all these years later. And it's given me such a rewarding experience. And I've worked with like just hundreds and hundreds of kids uh, from all different backgrounds because we've expanded and, 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 we, and we teach kids from all walks of life. And what I always keep in mind when I'm in those classrooms is my 11-year-old self. I want it to be taken seriously, so I always take my students seriously. And I always take their work seriously. And I want to nurture their creativity. 
And obviously with hundreds and hundreds of students, you have a variety of personalities. You have kids who are just like me, who are just, this is their dream. And I have other kids who are just sticking their toe in the water and they just want to explore creativity. And um, so they're coming from all kinds of different perspectives, but my goal is always the same is to take them seriously and to help make them be more creative and be critical thinkers. Mm -hmm. creative thinkers. I want them to be able to really expand their perceptions. And, and we do a lot of reading in our workshops. We read, uh, not just, you know, sometimes we read my books, because I think it's really important for them to understand that I actually write because there was a time when I didn't do that. I just don't read like read my books if you choose to, but let's read all these other great books. Um, but that's a big part of our program too, is, is just reading all of these fantastic books written by other people. Mm hmm. I have a question specifically about how you approach students in Asia, because in Asia, I think the education system puts more emphasis on rote memorization. So how do you um, help your students there to switch their brain and to think more creatively? Yeah, I mean, you're correct. Generally speaking, that is a characteristic of the edu Asian educational system in Asia. Um, and I work out with a lot of students in China and Korea specifically. And I feel like whenever a newer student comes to me, that can be a challenge. Though I do want to say I teach students who come from so many different walks of life as well. Like some students that I work with in Asia, they might attend an international school, for example. Their appetite for that kind of thinking has already been established or their familiarity with it. I've certainly had students where you know, we'll read a book and I'll ask them to give me an opinion about the book and they will look at me in complete and absolute terror, you know, because they're like, well, I don't know, where's the answer for that? And I'm like, the answer is inside of you. So, you know, they, that can't, I have had that experience, but it's just a case of moving forward and working with students and um, guiding them and just asking them to find their answers and to embrace it right and you know I do all the things with my students no matter where they're from that I do with my own life so we will make dragon eggs in my classes and write about them we will uh, make magic potions and we do all these things and um, my my workshops often look a little bit chaotic and messy and Usually the kids are fine. Sometimes you talk about um, the education system, but sometimes it's the adults that are a little bit more stressed out by that than, you know, than the kids. But the results speak for themselves, right? The kids actually produce and they are finding this creativity and they're making and telling their stories. Mm -hmm. Is being creative just um, finding like a safe space to express yourself? I think so. I think that sometimes we have this idea that you're either born creative or you're not like, you know, or I have this, you know, discussion with my friends, sometimes my artist friends, my creative friends, like, can you actually teach creativity? And the answer I always come back to eventually is yes, because you can teach someone to be more creative than they already are. For example, you can nurture what they have in them. I think we're all creative on some level. I mean, it's when people, whenever people say to me, I can't draw or I can't sing. And I'm like, well, you probably can, you just can't do it well, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So let's just do it. And then you'll be better than you were five minutes ago or whatever, right? So it's the same with creativity. Oh, I can't write. 
well, everyone can write like, you know, like it's just, what can you write? And I've worked with so many kids. Like I keep saying, I've worked with kids from so many different backgrounds, but I don't mean just culturally. I mean, like I've worked with um, neurodiverse kids, right? Uh, kids are coming with different learning challenges or kids who are coming with different emotional challenges. Like we all have those things, but we can still express ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And we can find ways to express ourselves. And I guess that's what I'm hoping is, yeah, just as you say, create that safe space, create that environment so that we can create. And I try not to judge what is created. Right. Mm-hmm. My, I'm just trying to coax that out of you and guide you and nurture you. I see. And what about adults? Um, you know, adults, I think as soon as we start working and getting out into the society, I think a lot of us lose our sort of lose our ability to be creative and to think imaginatively. But I think we can all benefit from, you know, being able to marvel at things on our daily lives. So how do we get that back now that we're older? Yeah, and I think that starts to happen when we're teenagers, when we're in high school. I think we start we it either starts to get hammered out of us or we want to escape from it because it's a little bit messy and it's a little bit mm. scary it might you know for lack of a better word not be cool and once again when i was a teenager i had this kind of safe haven of having a younger sister so i could get away with it it gave me kind of a shield at least in my own mm. mind and i think the other thing i'll say is you know my wife is very creative she's an actor and writer as well and And, you know, and even though we live in a very creative household, we work hard to be creative. Like we keep that alive. So, you know, we're in England uh, a few years ago. We went to visit the castle where they filmed a lot of the Harry Potter movies. And my wife signed us up for broom flying lessons. Um, And I was terrible at it, which is possibly another reason why I wrote a book where brooms aren't for flying. But, you know, we were the only two adults in that group taking this kind of broom flying lesson that the, the, the castle's putting on. But my wife's right. Like we should do that because we like her and I, we, this is our career. This is our field. We need to keep nurturing our inner child. And at that point we didn't have our own child. I think once you have your own child that starts to change, or at least I know um, I've seen it in other people in our household you know, it was already pretty alive, this kind of sense of play and, and, and um, silliness, you know, and creativity. We already had those kinds of things going on. Now we just have one other person who's doing them with us, right? So I was always making dragon eggs. Now I just have my son who's making them with me. So a lot of, or we were always playing dress up, you know, and getting ready for Halloween and doing cosplay or those sorts of things. Now we just have one more person who's on that journey with us. But we do, we we have had to be very conscious about making sure we don't shrug our shoulders and let it slide away because it can happen. And, you know, and I've talked a lot to parents who come to me and say, how can I help my child read more? How can I help my child write more? Or my child is showing an interest in this. How do I nurture them? And it's always not that complicated. It might be difficult, but the answer is always the same for me. It's like, well, read with them or read alongside them, or try doing it yourself. You know, and it's always amazing to me when parents says to me, well, I don't read. And I'm like, well, why not? Like, if you want your child to read, then read, you know, 
or, or, you know, and even some parents will say, well, I want my child to like, maybe it's their, you know, coming from a situation of, well, I want my child to read in English, but I'm not, I don't read English. That's okay. Just read whatever book you want. They'll still see you reading, mm. like read alongside them. And, you know, I have a goddaughter who's now an adult, but when she was a kid, we always used to read at night, different books, but we just had reading time. And I think, you know, you turn it into something that's not an obligation, but you turn it into something that's, you know, we're always looking for more family time and downtime. It's a perfect, reading's the perfect thing. So that's an example of keeping that inner child alive, which I think is what you're really kind of asking about, right? Like we think about creativity, we can think about the inner child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before I let you go, I want to kind of uh, get to know about what you're working on these days. Like what are some upcoming projects you have? Yes. So Spell Sweeper came out a few months ago. So inevitably with that comes a lot of work to do with marketing and, you know, appearances and things like that. And that's always been fun. And now I'm kind kind of taking a different approach to writing something I've never done before. I'm kind of working on two things at once. Okay. I tend to, I tend to have multiple ideas always floating around in my head and I kind of keep those ideas alive in their various notebooks, but I actually tried to write two at once. And it was my it was my way of going. Can I keep myself even more motivated? So if I'm getting stuck on this one idea, I'll switch to the other. I won't give my myself any excuses, uh, because sometimes I say, "Oh, I need to percolate on this for a while," and so now I'm like, "Okay, percolate all you want, but percolate while you're working on this one, and then switch back and forth." So I'm working on two different projects, and that system worked very well. And one of those projects kind of rose a little bit more to the top and I'm working on for lack of a better word a kind of time travel book a time travel book mm. yeah I, I wrote a time travel book as part of my Kendra Kennelstar series and I swore I'd never do it again because time travel is so Messy. complicated <laughs> yeah it's just I oh I don't know I ended up here again <laughs> so uh, but I'm trying to do it in a different way and I'm trying to kind of bring in my I feel like I established myself as a little bit of a humor, mm-hmm. humor author, uh, you know, someone who writes humor in Spell Sweeper. So I'm trying to bring that same vibe over and do a little bit of a commentary on the entire genre of time travel at the same time and poke gentle fun at it. I think that's what I was doing as Spell Sweeper. I was kind of, you were asking about Harry Potter. And I think in one way I'm poking gentle fun at the entire genre of fantasy, like kind of having fun with the, conventions of yep. fantasy yep. And, and having fun with the tropes of it and kind of calling them out at sometimes and 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 I think that's what I'm gonna I'm trying to do with this book as well I see and uh when do you think it'll come out I have no idea I um I'm working on this project right now I don't have a contract for it so we'll see I you know I I'm really happy with how it's going so far and I think it will find a home but Right now, I'm just kind of enjoying the process of writing it and making all the maps and all the other things that go along with it. <laughs> well, have fun, and I look forward to reading it once it does come out. Thank you so much. It's been great. Lee Edward Fody is a children's book author, illustrator, and creative writing teacher. You can check out his latest book, Spell Sweeper, and more at leefody.com. That's L-E-E-F-O-D-I.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google. And head over to cc-wan.com, that's S-I-S-S-I-W-A-N-G.com for more interviews like this one, plus read about the guests you just heard and see pictures from the interviews. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Until next time.